This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. In this episode, we'll be speaking to independent investigative journalist Ali Winston, and he's going to be speaking about the Boogaloo Cop Killers. Now, if you don't already know, we have done an episode about the Boogaloo Boys, the right-wing extremist libertarian disconnected decentralized movement in the US so definitely check that out but uh, if you can't be bothered essentially the Boogaloos are as I said a right-wing libertarian kind of anti-state extremist faction within uh, radical politics in the US two of them killed two police officers Ali's going to be talking all about it if you like what we're doing please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popular front So, so Ali, we're going to be speaking about uh, the Boogaloo boys, right? But specifically, guys that actually did what a lot of Boogaloos say they want to do. They killed a cop. Tell us about this. When did all this happen? Yeah, so earlier this year, in the summer, um, right around late May, when the George Floyd protests were just ripping through the country, um, there was an incredibly visceral reaction to this man's murder. Um, the you know eight minutes of him just be having his the life pressed out of him by this cop's neck, um, there was an enormous reaction through the country, and there were protests from coast to coast, uh, very 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 chaotic. In some cases, they got quite violent. Um, in Minnesota, in particular, they um, where the murder happened. Um, you know, there were these massive crowds, there were these scenes of, you know, the third precinct in Minneapolis got torched, um, got lit on fire. Um, but, you know, there were uh, at the um, at the and Minnesota rallies. I don't know if uh, people remember this at this point, but there were shots fired, like quite a few shots fired at police during those evenings. That only came out later, right? It only came out. Well, <sighs> You know, watching at the time in the kind of the, the fog of war um, on social media, you could see there were reports of shots fired those nights. There were also reports that night of the igloo flag being flown and of, you know, people running around with skull masks on. There was a lot of chatter about, oh, the white supremacists are here, um, which, you know, at the same time, you can realize how, given the past few years, people would mistake the skull mask or would associate the skull mask with groups like Adam Waffen and other um, uh, far right groups that came out of Iron March. What came out is that, um, let's see, maybe a few weeks ago, uh, late October, um, the Bureau unveiled charges against, um, against Ivan Harrison Hunter, who's a 26-year-old from Texas, um, who drove up to Minneapolis with an AR-15 and, excuse me, with an AK-47 and a variant and let off about a little, a little bit more than a dozen rounds at the uh, at the pre, at the you know Minnesota police um, police department's buildings, um, and he also apparently helped torch that facility, the third precinct. So yeah, I mean this is this is a very very revealing indictment. Um, you know, there's a. Uh, there was kind of this, you know, the Boogaloo group organized on Facebook, which is kind of remarkable given how, um, you know, how open that system is. And just how... Uh, boomer book for the feds, you know what I mean? Boomer, right, boomer book, but this is, this is the irony because these, these are, this is a 26-year-old, right? This is somebody who fits into the same category, the same age group as like the, the dudes from Adamoff and on the base that you and I, and Sonic Creek Division that you and I dug into 
um, with our colleagues over the past few years who would use Discord, who would bounce back and forth in Discord, Wire, what, Utopia? I don't even remember all the platforms. But, you know, these guys were all over the place. The interesting thing, though, is that the indictment for Hunter really opened things up in terms of the networking that these Boogaloo boys were doing online and the coordination they were doing between their action, the apparent coordination, rather, between um, their actions around different states that at the time looked very disparate. So let's back up a little bit and go back. Yeah, let's, let's, let's talk about that in a minute. Let's, let's go back to what, like, what they actually did first, right? Like what was happening? It was all a big, I mean, it was a very big hoo-ha. They, they went out to kill, right? They went out to shoot at cops. Um, and the reason why I want to step back and just go back to California is that there's another guy named Stephen Carrillo, Sergeant Stephen Carrillo, an Air Force sergeant who is currently charged with um, killing a federal court officer and a Santa Cruz County Sheriff's deputy in a spree that um, spanned late May and early June. Um, he killed the court officer in Oakland and shot the um, shot the Santa Cruz Sheriff's deputy to death um, in Santa Cruz about a week or so later um, when the cops rolled up on him and tried to take him into custody. Carrillo was in, according to the indictment that was unveiled uh, in late October in Minnesota, Carrillo was in direct communication with Hunter. Direct communication. So two hours after um, the third precinct was torched, um, Hunter texted Carrillo. So they were in communication off Facebook and then they had each other's phones, right? And they're encouraging him to do that, right? So this is on the night of the, what is it, the 27th? The same day that the precinct is torched, right? Carrillo, Hunter texts Carrillo, go for police buildings, right? And Carrillo texts him back, I did better, LOL. Meaning I've killed a cop. He'd shot, he had conducted this drive-by shooting on the federal courthouse in downtown Oakland, um, where he used a modified, um, basically a submachine gun, nine millimeter firing, um, uh, a nine, rifle that was modified to fire nine millimeter rounds at fully auto, and we'll come to this later, um, at the uh, guard post outside the courthouse. He killed um, uh, David Underwood and killed and wounded another court officer. So yeah, he'd done it. Like he was bragging about it. And um, pff, the feds now have this stuff. Let's talk about who these guys are. Like who actually is Hunter and Carrillo? So Carrillo is an interesting guy. He is, and this is something that I wrote up when I wrote up for you and Popular Front a couple of months ago. Um, Carrillo is an Air Force sergeant. He was with a, um, he was based out of Fort Travis at, near Sacramento. And he served as part of a like force protection team that would basically go in ahead of logistics landings and clear uh, sites. Um, they would secure sites. So he was part of a little bit of a rapid response team. They had quote unquote anti-terrorism training, but that could mean anything. Um... But he also, he had a bit of a checkered history. His wife, who was also, um, I believe she was also in the Air Force, she killed herself a few years earlier. And they had two kids. The grandparents were not in on uh, good terms with Carrillo and alleged that he drove her to suicide. There's a, a, probably a backstory. It's very controlling, allegedly, right? Yeah, there's, there's a backstory there that may or may not come out. Um, by the way, the discovery in his case is massive, like, tens of thousands of files, incredibly large, um, like maybe a terabyte, maybe a couple terabytes of, of information. There's going to be a lot that comes out, both his cases, both state and federal. But Carrillo also had developed a 
I'm not certain where, but he developed a pretty militant libertarian ideology, um, you know, Second, Second Amendment uh, freak, really into the kind of the militia movement. He was training with a militia out of Turlock, California, called like the Second Grizzly Scouts or something like that. And they were, you know, they weren't involved in his attack, but he certainly was engaging in this sort of paramilitary activity while he was an active duty Air Force member living on base and serving in the U.S., um, the United States military. So, yeah, that's um, that's who he is. And in terms of Hunter, he claims, um, and this is all from the indictment that was presented, he claimed that he was a, quote, leader of the Boogaloo Boys in South Texas, that he'd driven up with um, a couple other guys from his, quote, unquote, fire team, and that, quote, the BLM protesters in Minneapolis loved me um, because they would put, they were there to push back against uh, the police and respond to police violence, to live fire from the police with live fire. Um, I mean, he was also, you know, he was, he was the sort of guy who referred to himself as a quote terrorist. He knew what he was doing. He's playing. He said, I'm, he said, I'm going to go down shooting to a confidential informant. Um, like it's quite remarkable. I mean, he was arrested. He went back to Texas. He was arrested months later, but it's, they seem to have worked back off of the devices that Stephen Carrillo had to catch up with Hunter. Right, and I just want to kind of say for any listeners here that didn't hear our Boogaloo episode, there's a lot of misinformation. Frankly, I don't want to sound like conspiracy hoo-ha, but there's quite a lot of knowingly wrong information put out by liberal reporters who know that they're reporting in a wrong way on what the Boogaloos are. Now, I don't love the Boogaloos. I don't give a shit about the Boogaloos, but I do care about what they actually are. So... (laughs) It's, it's not a centralized movement. The idea, like you just said, this guy claims he's a Boogaloo leader. That just means he's a leader of his specific group wherever he is. There's many different ideologies within the Boogaloo. And generally, they're just kind of anti-police, like libertarian, but American right-wing libertarian, not as we know it, Europeans, but right-wing libertarian American extremists, right? Now, in that category, there are some that are far right and fascists and racists. But they are the minority from what I've seen. There was a lot, or maybe at least not the minority, but they're like a fringe element to it. But there were, because a lot of people saying, well, how come the Boogaloos were hanging out with BLM? Well, because a lot of them are not racist. They, Or at least if they are, they're hiding it well and they're just saying like, we hate the cops too. I mean, you've seen on the Boogaloo flag, Breonna Taylor is on there. George Floyd was put on there. Michael Hastings randomly was on there, the journalist. But to point out like how interesting this ideology is and how... I think it's really a sign of the times. You know what I'm saying, Ali? Yeah, no, it is anti. It is an anti-state ideology, and there are tons of different components to it. But this is not. They are not a siege group. They are not a neo-fascist group that seeks to overthrow the government with a white ethnostate. Um, it's a lot more varied than that, and it's not to say that there aren't elements of the of the organization, as you mentioned, that are aligned with Trump or that aligned that are fa- frankly like straight up neo-Nazis or fascists. But to cast them in one category as one thing is facile. It's the same thing as calling the Proud Boys white supremacists, which is facile and plays into their messaging because they have black and Latino members as well. They are ultra-nationalists. They are hard right. They are, in some senses, neo-fascists. But, you know, the distinctions matter here. And that's one of the hard things about reporting on this world, in this sphere in the United States, because the distinction... You know, fascist 
is not a term. Fascist, authoritarian, ultranationalist, these are terms that are, have currency in Europe and are linked to very discrete political movements and tendencies. Like, that doesn't quite translate to the U.S. in terms of the way that our political diet, our, our public discourse happens. Um, yeah, I've noticed. <laughs> it's a very strange, uh, rough dynamic. I mean, Carrillo's not white, right? No, Carrillo's Latino. Carrillo's Latino. Um, and there are other books who have been um, interviewed. I mean, there, are document, there have been a number of documentaries about them now. You, you can see there's Latinos in that uh, sphere. There, there's black folk in that sphere. Um, but the interesting thing here is that they are not, it is a horizontal group, if anything. Um, I would say it's more along the lines of affinity groups that share a common ideology and a common cause. But the difference here is that these folks are uniting around, it's, it's it, kind of this gun culture. Um, you know, don't, you can't touch my guns. The, good, the state is involved in tyranny. Any sort of repression on that is a trigger for violence. They are using all these new technologies um, that have been developed in recent years to get around gun control laws to help each other arm up and pose a significant challenge to law enforcement and the state. And here's where what happened last week is so critical. So on November 4th, the Bureau announced the arrest of Timothy John Watson in Ransom, West Virginia. Um, according to the criminal complaint, he was selling firearms parts without a license. He ran a website called portablewallhanger.com, which, quote, purports to sell 3D printed innocuous hooks made with two pieces. However, when disassembled, one of the pieces functions as an illegal drop into auto-sear, which has been converted by ATF, confirmed by ATF to convert a semi-automatic AR-15 into a fully automatic machine gun. That's directly from the complaint. Um, he was selling switches, and Stephen Carrillo bought one of those switches. Ah, uh, so he was already prepared, essentially. He bought this switch. So this guy, Watson, was advertising his, um, his portable wall hanger on Bugaloo Boy-related um, Facebook groups and other, um, other online forums. And, uh, you know, this is... That he was, you know, donating money from this, according to the complaint, he was donating money from the purchases to the, quote, Duncan Lemp, a memorial fund, which is a bit of a tell, as you um, know better than I do. Duncan Lemp is a big reference for um, he's one of the the folks who the Boogaloo's consider their uh, their one of their martyrs. Um, his name is all over their flags and so forth. Yeah, something similar. I mean, I don't want to say similar, but the same kind of idea of what happened to like Breonna Taylor. Like, police, I don't know, shot him through a door or some bullshit. Like, basically, a guy that was seemingly in the Boogaloo eyes unjustly killed by the cops. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And his quote, um, what is it? I became unreasonable. I believe that's Duncan. That's a Duncan Lemp quote. That's one of the um, the referential quotes that the Boogaloo's um, often use as one of their slogans. It was what. It was also what um, Carrillo drew in blood on uh, one of the phrases he drew in blood on the hood of a car in um, Northern California when after he'd been shot by the cops and when he was uh, right before he was detained. Um, those some photographs of those. Uh, those scrawlings were surfaced in his complaint, in his um, in his charging papers. Um, it's a wild story, man. Let, let's go over that then. So let's kind of rebuild the story then because we've gone off track a bit. So Carrillo meets Hunter on a Boogaloo Facebook group, basically. They both agree, like, yeah, let's meet up very quickly. And they're rolling about with arms. What happened? Not Hunter, not Hunter, not Hunter. So he meets Carrillo, met up... Um, 
he was communicating with another guy named, um, I believe, Robert Justice on a Boogaloo Facebook group. Ah, yes. Sorry. And they, no, no, it's, there are a lot of names around here. And, you know, they said, oh, look, the protests are on our coast. Let's get it going. Um, we got to do something now. So they meet up. And um, according to Justice, and Justice, by the way, gave all this information voluntarily to the, voluntarily to the FBI. Um, he claims that they met up at a um, you know, public transit station a little bit south of Oakland gets into this white van, this kind of like a Conaline van with a sliding door, um, 1990s issue, and 1990s vintage, and he shows up and, you know, Carrillo hands him a vest, a bulletproof vest, and then he hands him, and he shows him a couple guns. He's like, hey, man, like, let's go boog. Uh, Justice claims that he denied the gun, denied holding the gun, but he then proceeded to go with... Um, and claims he was threatened by Carrillo. Also, later on, that came out in his own case because he's charged too. But they drive to downtown Oakland. They drive around the protests. There's, you know, Oakland's protests have been, um, over the years, it's been a place where things really do pop off. Um, I've seen it firsthand many, many times, like dozens of times during the Oscar Grant movement, uh, Occupy Oakland, the first Black Lives Matter cycle. Um, things do really just, they, they it gets lit out there pretty quick. So... They drive around downtown Oakland, um, do a couple recons. Justice gets out of the car at one point and takes the license plate off the back of the tr- back of the van. So he's either doing that under duress or he's uh, cooperating. Um, Carrillo, what, there's video of that apparently, and Carrillo did not have a gun to his head when he took the license plates off the car. So we'll see. We'll see what, how uh, willing a participant he was in all this. But then they drive by the downtown courthouse, right? They pass by it around, they go around the block, they pass by it again, they slow down, car slows down, and the uh, van door pops open, and Carrillo sprays the guard post up with this uh, this modified rifle, this fully automatic rifle that he's, uh, he's created with help of this portable wall hanger, and then they drive off, and that, um, you know, for like a week and change... They're at large. There's a manhunt going on throughout uh, Northern California. At the time, it's really important to remember this, the Trump administration claimed that Black Lives Matter's demonstrators had attacked the federal courthouse and that the, um, you know, that was part of the ju- his justification for why, you know, the National Guard needed to be sent in, Democratic cities needed to crack down on these protesters who were, pro- who were pushing back against pre- police brutality and police murder. And right, but it was this boogaloo guy. Exactly. Yeah, they used they used the incident as cover to to you know carry out their own goals. And that, by the way, is something that has come out in a lot of the um, the court cases that have been filed against the boogaloo boys. That they did see the BLM protests as a very significant opportunity to recruit um, to get other people to rally to their cause and, and also to act too, because you have to remember that some of the, a lot of these groups did form really start gaining steam during the, um, during the spring, during the pandemic lockdowns. Right. And that's something that it's not uniform, but that's when the, um, the idea about p- preparing for the impending boogaloo, the, the second civil war, the, you know, pushing back against government, government tyranny really gained a lot of currency. Um, you saw a lot of armed protesters showing up at state houses, particularly the Michigan State House. Um, and yeah, it's it was kind of a, a cultural strain that just exploded at that point in time. So then they split up. Korea goes into hiding out in um, 
out in Santa Cruz in this town called Ben Lomond, where Ben Lomond, where he's uh, he's camped out. He's from out there, and you know he gets some couple cops come across his van. They try and uh, California Highway Patrol and the Santa Cruz sheriffs try and roll up on him. And he's laying in wait for them in an ambush. Throws a couple improvised like homemade grenades at them. Um, injures a couple of the cops. Sprays them up with that uh, with that rifle again kills this uh, sergeant uh, or excuse me I think he was a sergeant the the sheriff's deputy and uh, wounds a couple more runs away he's been hit he's wounded he's bleeding he tries to carjack one person he's unsuccessful he tries to carjack somebody else Um, the person turns out to be a former wrestler um, former like collegiate or high school wrestler and bats the gun away and ends up detaining him like pinning him down to the ground and detaining him till till the cops can arrive and in the middle, all while all this is happening, happening, Carrillo's screaming out these like slogans. You know, I, I stop the duopoly. You know, we we gotta stop tyranny. All this, all this uh, random shit that is uh, like it's showing how deeply, deeply um, indoctrinated, or you know, how deeply he believes in the ideology that he's been immersing himself in all these months or years or however long he, you know, he was in that lane. So his case was really an eye-opener. Um, it completely changed the narrative about violence at protests and really got a lot of law enforcement in this country to kind of open their eyes to, hey, look, maybe this is actually the threat here. Maybe the threat is not going to come from protesters carrying guns in here and shooting cops because they're angry about um, you know, us killing black folks. It's maybe there's an actual movement here that is piggybacking on all this and using it to kind of put the skills and the tools that they've been developing into action. Yeah, um, I, I think I think one of the things that really struck me was how cold Carrillo was. You know, he's he's kind of I don't know. He he's very like uh, you know from the piece you did for us. Like he didn't he was really about it. Do you know what I mean? For want of a better expression, like he really wanted to do this. You know, totally committed. Um, he planned it. He geared up, and you know. Everything about the guy's life, the the militia training, the prep he did for this, the way he, according to justice, um, the state that he, the statement that he gave to the bureau, the way that he just like he was really, really, really driving to do that. There was no way he was going to be deterred from or dissuaded from carrying from from carrying out an act of violence there. And uh, yeah. He was totally committed to it, and to to think that even a week and a half later that he was sitting there, he he probably fashioned those grenades in between, um, or he prepped himself for an ambush when the cops came for him. He knew what was going to happen, and he knew what he was going to do. Yeah, and completely fucked it up. Um, what, uh, <laughs> what happened? What happened since then? Like since since the the piece have been published at Popular Forum, you've seen some more stuff, right? I don't know how it works over there, but some court documents have been opened up or whatever the fuck. Like, what's happened? Yeah, well, what what has happened since the initial, um, since Carrillo's arrest and his charging and the initial hearings in the Santa Cruz case and then the uh, the federal case is that the um, the feds have really opened up the, um, before the election, I think they had shifted their focus a little bit away from the siege groups, at least the right-wing um, domestic terrorism folks, the folks who work counterterrorism or whatever our, our version of that is, they'd shifted away from the siege groups and more towards the boogaloos and were saying, look, these are the guys who are actually carrying, they're the ones who are acting, they're not the ones who are talking and prepping, they're the ones who are going out there and carrying out acts of violence. So they shifted their focus uh, towards those groups and because of 
I mean, this is, again, where Facebook comes into it. Facebook is very law enforcement friendly. Um, the law enforcement has a back end for it. Facebook keeps a tremendous amount of stuff. And they have years and years, well over a decade now, of working with the cops and providing them information. So you're, the Bureau was able to get these treasure troves of just big histories of chats and communications. And once you have, say, for instance, you have somebody's Facebook account, the odds are that they have it on their phone at this point. Um, so then you have the mobile number and you can then write a Title III um, affidavit and get a wiretap and get the uh, the full take on the text messages, call history, um, whatever else you're able to get through a Title III these days, which is quite extensive considering how much people have on their phones. And that's where, um, you know, it's not really 100% confirmed, but I, from what I'm seeing in terms of the timing of the Hunter indictment in Minnesota and then the other one in, um, in West Virginia for, for, John, for Timothy John Watson, it looks like they got to me like they got to these guys through Carrillo um, because he was so active and he'd really branched out and networked among um, the books. And he was typically when you see in any group um, – that is given towards in any group, you'll see one or two people, you'll see a lot of people who talk about violence and then you'll see one or two people who really are the drivers of it. Right. Um, and it, it appears that Korea was, and you'll see this amongst like bat, amongst police departments. You'll see this in other domestic terrorism contexts. Um, Sam Woodward, for example, the Adam Waffen member who killed Blaze Bernstein, he was a perfect example of this. And yeah, to me, it looks like Korea was that guy in the book. He was the, he was kind of the person around to, he was a person because of how active he was and how adamant, how ardent he was in his beliefs. He gravitated, people gravitated towards him and he gravitated towards the other folks who were willing to go out there and, and act. And there were a few, there were quite a few people at that point in time. This is the remarkable thing about that movement who in the spring and early summer were 100% committed and they were willing to act and they did. Right. Um, and what is Hunter, this Hunter guy, what is he actually charged with? Uh, so Hunter, the one in, um, in Minnesota, he is charged with uh, interstate travel to incite a riot. Um, and I believe there might be a little bit of a, um, of a looting charge. There could be other charges that get fired against him, but the, the travel, it's basically an anti-riot act charge which is similar to the charge the feds are using against Robert Rundo, um, who's the founder of the Rise Above Movement. They used against the Rise Above Movement, the street-fighting Nazis from Southern California. Um, and it's a pretty flexible charge. I don't believe they've charged him with weapons violations because they were his own weapons. And they might load up um, illegal use of firearm if they're able to confirm that he fired those shots. But right now, it looks like the anti-riot act is the charge. Right, and um, Carrillo's accomplice, what's, what's he looking at? Carrillo's accomplice is looking at uh, similar charges to, to Carrillo. Um, not quite as severe, but he's being charged with, you know, he is being charged with aiding and abetting, essentially. Like, Carrillo himself, you know, he's got the double murder charge. Like, state court um, and then federal court. What's actually interesting about Carrillo is that they're going... Um, for the death penalty. The feds are going for the death penalty on him, which makes it a higher bar of evidence. It makes the proceedings... Um, he, I believe his attorney is a federal defender, and it really makes the proceedings... Like, it's a very high risk. Um, but yeah, Justice is charged with aiding and abetting for... Um, you know, he's, he's got a basically a first-degree murder charge on top of him because of the way that the murder... Um, 
the murder counts work. So he has every incentive in the world to cooperate, given that he's apparently not the person that fired the shots. Yeah. Um, and so what, Carrillo killed, what, like, one was a cop and one was a security officer or something? Yeah, so the, the first one, the first person um, Carrillo murdered, allegedly, well, and probably did it, um, is a, was a federal court protective officer. So they, in the United States, there's a specific division, um, there's a specific service, law enforcement service, that um, guards the federal courthouses and... Um, and associated facilities. The second person was a deputy from the Santa Cruz County Sheriff's Department. Santa Cruz is a coastal county, a little bit south of San Francisco, um, two counties south of San Francisco on the central coast, a beautiful place, uh, very forested. Um, ironically, the um, heavily forested, gorgeous country, but ironically, the area that Carrillo, um, Carrillo's house was in, was hit incredibly hard by the by wildfires, um, like just weeks later, or not weeks later, but months later in, in August, um, when the real bad fires hit. So yeah, I mean, they're looking they're staring at some serious, serious time, all these guys. Right. And I mean, this is a kind of dumb question, but I want to kind of get what you think about it, like how you would explain it. Um, why did Carrillo do this? Why did he go out and kill these cops? I, I wish I had a def I don't have a definitive answer to that. I think that based on his ideology and based on my reading of the rest of the um, complaints and what I've seen from other folks in the book and also similar actors from other far right organizations from far right organizations that you and I have both worked on for a long time, these people believe in a domino effect. They want to carry out an act that will inspire others to follow in their wake. It's not dissimilar. Um, from how you know violent extremists work across the spectrum, but they do. He did believe that. From my understanding, is that Carrillo sought to sp inspire people to push back against law enforcement in a more radical way than they were they've been doing to date. Um, the same thing with Hunter. Like they sought to serve as they wanted to be the accelerant on the um, on the fires that were the protests and the this national this raging national anger at uh, George Floyd's murder. Yeah, it's it, you know what it's it's such a fascinating um, kind of convergence of ideas. The Boogaloo movement, just for me looking at it from abroad, because it's kind of funny. You got all the all the kind of I don't know what you want to call them, like radical liberals or the anarchists or the communists, whoever was out protesting. You know, all the A cabs were out there. You know, all cops are bastards. And then ironically, Boogaloo's who are also A cabs. You know, in that sense, those were the guys that actually did the cop killing. Uh, not the left-wingers, you know, it was the, the right-wing libertarians. It's just fascinating to me how this happened, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, there are certain ideas that transcend the, that, you know, transcend the political spectrum, that span it. And dislike of authority is certainly uh, something that, you know, people on the far right and people on the far left share because sooner or later, you know, the, the, the weight of the state's going to come down on you if you're trying to push back on it, either if you're pushing back on it for a gun-loving paradise, if you're pushing it back on it to try, or you're pushing against it to try and create, like, a, you know, a version of Rojava or, you know, anarcho-syndicalist, you know, country or series of independent mutually assisting cities and things like that, um, the state will push back on you and will try and crush you. So that, it just depends on which group is able, willing, and capable of carrying out a uh, catastrophic, you know, a catastrophic act of violence. 
across the U.S., I mean, the reality is that in the past, in the recent past, um, actually past like, what, three, four decades, like, you'd have to go back a long, long way, um, maybe to the weathermen, to find a case of wide, of, you know, serious left-wing, lethal left-wing violence, um, far-left violence in the U.S., and the far right is just all over it, man. Like, that's just, that's the way that things go here, because they're the people who like guns, who obsess about guns, who train with them, who train with weapons, who train with explosives. Um, there's a large, as, you know, exemplified by Mr. Carrillo, there's a large cachet of, um, for this ideology in the military and amongst veterans. And it's not universal, and there are left-wing, there are a ton of left-wing veterans out there too, but the folks who go balls to the wall and, and um, you know, put the foot on the, you know, mash the gas pedal tend to be, uh, tend to be like, uh, like Carrillo. Mm. And what's the response in the Boogaloo community? Is Carrillo seen as like a martyr for their movement? Is he like a hero for them or what? Like, honestly, I've been looking and I've not really seen them say much about him. Um, I don't know if you have. They're not talking about him from what I can say. They're not talking about him publicly from what I can Why do you think that is? Um, well, it would make them, you make you a target, right? Because um, Carrillo was a bad, like, he was well known. He was, it, these indictments make clear that this guy was not nobody. Um, like from a couple of people that I know, like a bunch of servers went dead after he did what he did, um, and after his um, his identity came out. And it's not to say that a bunch of you know the movement is tamped down, but you know the, he has not been claimed in the same way that Duncan Lemp was. And I think that's because any group and any individual knows that if they claim him, then they're putting a bullseye on their forehead. Yeah, how seriously um, are law enforcement taking the Boogaloo movement in America? Extremely, extremely, yeah, extremely. I mean, the amount of, um, from the information that I have, from the, you know the reporting that I do, from the sources that I keep, it, it they were they were a red ball. They were the red ball target for the past five months. In the same way that Adam Waffen Division was maybe about a year and a half ago. Where do you think the Boogaloo movement is going to go from here? Then do you think it will fizzle out or what? Uh. I mean, I don't see, I looked at it in terms of a continuum between like the, uh, the three percenters and a lot of the militias that came up years and years and years back. This is kind of a cultural strain in the U S um, that just takes different forms and has different iterations depending on the generation, depending on the cultural context, depending on the broader culture. I don't think it goes away anytime soon. And the fact that, you know, as you're working on in this project of yours, like the fact that you can, that's getting so much easier to generate your own, to create your own weapon, to create a really, really lethal weapon um, off the legal market, that is, uh, that's a big, big um, accelerant for this sort of culture, I think. Like the fact that you're able to just do this and get around regulations and that you'll see, you know, people who are into this culture look at gun regulations as tyranny of the state, right? Um, that's a huge part of Second Amendment culture. That's an old idea that well, well predates the Boogaloo. Um, so, yeah, I think that there's a very good chance that um, not maybe not in this iteration, maybe in a different format, but it, it's going to continue. I don't think this goes away anytime soon. There's a lot of, um, you know, cats kind of out of the bag with it. And frankly, like they taking taking the life of a couple, you know, firing on cops, like that's, I don't, I just don't, I don't know enough about what their community, how what the 
adherence to this ideology and what what the books are saying in their own closed circles. But, you know, Carrillo, Hunter, Watson, their names are not going away anytime soon. Yeah, man. Um, Ali, is there anything else you want to say about the uh, these boogaloo cop killers? Um, I think that there is a... I'm very loath to... This is a group where I, because of how amorphous and how like broad I guess the best way to describe their ideology is kind of broad tent um I'm really loath to say that they're they are not affiliated with one political party or the other but I know that in the period in the transition period now between one administration one presidential administration and the other there's a lot of you know it's kind of a very tendentious moment it's a very um very fragile moment and that I don't know if that's the sort of thing that people are looking to to seize on and kind of shake the tree a little bit and cause further destabilization. It's something that I know has been talked about a lot, especially among folks who watch the right wing, who watch um, the American extremist uh, movements. And it's something, the serious researchers I'm, I'm talking about, not the people who are in it for the nonprofits and the media attention and the institutional support. Um, it's It's a bit of a... It's a bit of a wild time here. Biden, he wants to, he wants to regulate firearms more, right? What does he want to do? Biden wants to regulate firearms. Um, I don't have an idea about his specific policy proposal, but you know, after the Newtown um, shootings and after a series of you know these horrible, horrible massacres, you know, mass shootings that we've had in the U.S., he's been very outspoken about wanting to implement um, more gun control. So I don't presume, I, I don't think he's going to be a fan of these groups. He's also Biden. Since the uh, since Charlottesville in 2017, Biden has really focused in on right wing extremism. Um, he said that is what he claims uh, propelled him to decide to run for president again um, successfully this time. And it's going to be interesting to see how his administration shapes up their counter extremism and domestic terrorism approach. Um, I think it's going to be far more robust than has been done beforehand. But again, like you can only use law enforcement. Uh, to a certain degree, right? There has to be de-radicalization is a much deeper process. And that's, I think that's where the challenge lies. Yeah, man, definitely, I agree. Um, Ali, where can people find you and get hold of you and follow this uh, important work that you're doing? Um, my, the best public, fa- I'm an independent journalist. Um, the best public facing way to get in touch with me is on Twitter. My handle is A Winston. Um, I'm out there. My there's an email address up there. Um, it's a Proton Mail, um, ali dot Winston at protonmail dot com. But yeah, I'm out here. A W I N S T O N, no e on the end, right? Yep, not Ray Winstone. Ali like Muhammad, Winston like the cigarette. <laughs> All right, mate. Thank you very much. Not a problem. That was journalist Ali Winston talking about the plot, the attack by two Boogaloo, Boogaloo, Boogaloo boys this year in the US. Whenever I talk about this situation with the Boogaloo cop killers, people say, no, they weren't Boogaloos. Yes, they were. <laughs> like, you just heard it. They were. Um, if you go to uh, popularfront.co slash articles, you'll see an article that Ali wrote about all of this in more detail as well. Boogaloo cop killer. Check it out. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us on the Patreon. That is how we make our money. That is how we keep going. And you get a load of benefits as well. You get lots for your money. It's not us begging, saying, please give us money. It's us saying, hey, subscribe, and you get all this cool shit. Patreon.com slash Popular Front. Check us out there. 
All right, this episode is sponsored by Oracle Coffee Shop in Portland, Oregon, USA. They're an independent coffee shop selling only fair trade products. See them at 3875 Southwest Bond Avenue, 97239. Go say hello to my mate Frank if he's there. He will give you a nice discount if you tell him you came there because of popular front he will give you a 99.9 percent discount and you can quote him quote me and tell him i said that um no don't do that well you can if you want who gives a fuck uh <laughs> this episode is also sponsored by Grind Core House, a pair of independent coffee shops in Philadelphia, USA. One in South, one in West. Check them out on social media at Grind Core House. Anyway, the episode is also sponsored by Propagandopolis, an outlet selling and informing people about historical conflict propaganda. Get prints at propagandopolis.com. That's P R O P A G A D O P O L I S.com. Enter the code POPULARFRONT10, you get 10% off. The episode is the episode is also sponsored by Black Triangle, an independent company selling self-defense tools. Check them out at blktriangle.com. Um, also, like I said, if you want uh, to get all the extra stuff, subscribe to us at Patreon.com/PopularFront. If you don't like Patreon, you can go to our. Uh, um, you can go to where can you go? Fuck my life. PopularFront.co/support. You can donate Bitcoin. You can um, send us money via PayPal. All of that, if that's what you want to do. Uh, also, get our merchandise at PopularFront.shop. Check us out there. Uh, go to our YouTube, youtube.com slash popular front. Subscribe. The uh, 3D printed guns in Western Europe, a very, very illegal and spicy documentary, is coming out in November. Um, there's a little short 30 second teaser on my Twitter if you want to see that at Jake underscore Hanrahan, H A N I H A N. Um, yeah. Instagram uh, at popular.front. Twitter at popularfrontco. Uh, thank you to the following people on Patreon: Larson eight six six nine, Nadim El Azmar, Bjorn Kirsten, Michael O'Connor, Hapet Yagia Zayan, Zach Packard, Todd Cravens, Alexander, Nicholas Butter, Ron Swanson, JD, Jav, Bastian Gamillo Ritmeyer. Ian Froese, James Cully, Michael Akakan, Ethan Reyes, Fitz Madrid, Joe Watt, Alex Northrop, Ed Coulthard, Johnny LaFleur, Clayton Taylor, Hugo Newski, Mike Barone, Scott Hopton, Liam Williams, Chris Cusimano, Degenerate Zero Alpha, Giorgio Arani, DR, C. Jackson Trey Nance, Charlie, Amy Rupert, Rubicon, Mink, Frank Austin, Amelia Mee, Christina Rivetti, Freya Northman, Ali Hunter, Moody Al Rashid, Maxwell Burke, Bill Wilson, Andrew Hurley, Vida Provost, Brian McLaughlin, Tom Lochrin, Ari from the Discord, Young Wasabi, Sarushe Hawazi, Tony Bin, Adam Berg Snyder, Skartoon Music, Sebastian from the Discord, Stephen Davila, Anthony Kabarek, Patrick Bronte, Dan Dunham, Fletcher Tate, Chad Walker, Diana Gorvenek, Q Ball, 
Lawrence Abrahams, Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did, Emily Molly, Axel Iverson, Christopher Martin, Ryan Sandercock, Moritz Zumbul, Kay Hardy Roberts, and Joanne Stocker. Thank you all very much. Without you, this would not be moving ahead as fast as it is. If you want to support us, again, patreon.com slash popularfront. Music in this episode, the intro is by Home, and the outro is always is by my mate Sam Black. Check his music out at samblackpf.com. Thank you.